Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman here with Jennifer White. Hi, Jen. Hey, sorry, I have froggy voice today, so oh, apologize no to everybody. Uh, so this episode is a really good one. Uh, love, love, love our guest. One of my favorite yes. attorneys out there. It's an attorney one. Yay, attorneys. Yay, attorneys. Uh, also, we're kind of stretching because you know we really focus on assisted reproductive technology, and this is kind of adjacent as another family forming um, method or tool that people use to grow their families. Um, so I thought as an intro question, Jen, is there any, uh, stretching or outside of the usual that you have done recently or that you'd like to talk about or share? Uh, I mean, I think my only big out of my comfort, well, I guess I have two is that, uh, I definitely served on the board of a farmer's market nice. over the last year. Totally normal, which, like everyone you know, does. Totally <laughs> normal thing to do. I mean, yeah. Um, but also, and you guys all make fun of me, is um, I definitely have started recording for our um, company's TikTok. Oh my God, your TikTok obsession. Everyone it, followed Jenna on TikTok. Oh it's not, God. I mean, but it's like, it was totally like, I was like not doing it outside of my comfort level. And then like, because I don't know anything about it. And now, I, I mean, I'm putting stuff up. It's good. So um, what about you? But when uh, you or somebody in your household experience yeah, or outside of their norm. <laughs> I don't have anything good for myself, but I was just mentioning to you that I think it's absolutely hilarious that uh, my daughter is taking this enrichment. They have like extra classes you can take and we, we make her take them in the morning just because the drop off time works better. if She has a morning class and uh, she couldn't get into the classes she wanted. And so she is taking, I'm d- just kidding. If you're listening teacher, this is, this was her first choice. Um, <laughs> he's taking a cornhole slash badminton class, but I think it's absolutely, absolutely hilarious that there is a cornhole class in her middle school. Um, so she's Why not, right? ready for college <laughs> parties and ESPN eight. Maybe there's cornhole scholarships. I don't know. This could be, I mean, I've watched the championships on like, wow. they usually have them like over the oh. summer, they're televised, you know, this, it's, this could it, be it's what comes on right after the hot dog eating contest. So <laughs> totally of the same caliber. And now, you know, people take classes to learn cornhole i did not actually know that so i mean not equating because we're not making fun of what our guest yes. does no no just um, not outside, at all just in fact outside of the norm that's all that's of what our we, norm what and what we normally talk about is so, definitely we're going to talk about adoption today yes so now we have an amazing legal expert on adoption really to come in and um give a response to what so many of the people we talk to here is saying when they go through assistive reproductive technology where people say just adopt or why aren't you adopting? And she really gives them, lays down all the, all the knowledge, all the info that's really helpful whether you choose to adopt or not. Welcome Lila Bradley to the podcast. Lila, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's, I'm delighted to be here. And we'll just put it out there that, you know, some of our guests we don't know very well, just agree to be on the podcast. Others we do know for years, and Lila happens to be one of my very, very favorite assisted reproductive technology attorneys. So, so excited to have her on. Um, So, Lila, let's start. Um, Where are you? And we already, you know, I've ruined that you're an assisted reproductive technology attorney, but um, tell us how you got to that place. Okay. All right. Great. Well, I am coming to you from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and I 
you know, I took a little bit of a circuitous path to get to this place. I, I graduated from law school a very long time ago. Um, and my first legal career was as a business lawyer. I did uh, nice. corporate transactions. I, you know, helped. Super people. exciting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I helped people buy and sell companies and do contracts and, and general corporate governance type issues. Um, then I had a bunch of kids of my own. I was very fortunate that, yes. uh, that I did not have a challenge in that area. So I had three kids and got kind of bored with the corporate world and decided to focus on kids and family for several years. Yeah. Uh, but then I wanted to come back into the professional world and started looking around for something different to do and just really through a chance meeting with somebody that I, um, I knew from the legal community found out that there was a job coming available in a local nonprofit to work in child welfare law, which is well, foster care law. Yeah. And I jumped at it and I said, I told the executive director, I said, you know, I don't know anything about this area of law, but I can learn that. But I know how to run a program. I ran complex transactions and run my family and, <laughs> you know, run the PTA and, and all of that. So, so they hired me. And so I spent almost 10 years in that job doing, um, working with foster care cases and the law surrounding those cases. And so, as you might think, a lot of foster care cases end up in adoption. Mm, and yep. so I learned a little bit about adoption law during those years. And I met a local um, attorney who had one of the most prominent adoption practices in Georgia at that time. And so she called me up one day and said, I want you to come work with me. And she said, she said, I know you like representing poor people. And I kind of smiled and said, yeah, it, it has been really rewarding to work with the marginalized community. And she said, I can't tell you that our clients are poor. She said, but I, what I will tell you is that most of our clients are not wealthy. And they are coming to us at an incredibly vulnerable time in their lives because they want a child mm -hmm. so badly and so deeply and they need our help to do that. Yeah. And that just, she had me, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so she had a thriving practice of both adoption and assisted reproduction. So she brought me in and, uh, and taught me the ropes. And my background in complex transactional work was very informative <laughs> as I yes. learned yeah, the, the surrogacy world, um, but also adoptions. It's because it really, it's, it's complex and it's multidisciplinary and, um, and multiple parties. And also people who are, as she said, very vulnerable on, on both sides of the adoptions. And the work I had done with marginalized communities in the foster care world really has helped me um, in my current practice. Yeah, makes sense. 
Uh, so at this point now in your practice, are you still doing a lot of adoption and assistive reproductive technology or how does that break down? So yes, we, we, we put ourselves out there and market our practice as, as all things family building. And so both assisted reproduction, fertility law, and, uh, and adoption law, uh, probably about, we're probably close to half and half, um, probably more assisted reproduction, certainly in recent years as, um, as just families use of assisted reproduction has increased across the board. Um, but we still do a lot of adoptions. Most of the adoptions we do are relative adoptions, you know, where it's grandparents or aunts or uncles um, adopting children from their family where the parents aren't able to take care of them. Mm -hmm. Um, We do a lot of step-parent adoptions and, uh, you know, both to use a an overused word, but traditional step-parent adoptions where it's Mm -hmm. a heterosexual couple and one of the parents has children from a previous relationship. And so now the spouse is adopting, but also spousal adoptions for same sex couples where we're Mm -hmm. using the adoption law to confirm parental rights for same sex couples where, um, you know, where it's a lesbian couple who's had a baby themselves using a donated sperm and there's still some uncertainty in the law out there. So we right. do those kind of adoptions um, and then do a lot of foster care adoptions. We, we keep our connections to that foster care community and are always just really happy to be able to help those children find their forever, you know, or they've already found their forever yeah. family. We're, we're there to help. Make it legal. Confirm, Make yeah. it legal. Get, the, yeah. get the, the signature stamp and seal of the court so that nobody can ever question that in the future. Awesome. Well, one thing I really want to talk to you about particularly is this pushback that so many of our clients on the assisted reproductive technology side hear from friends and family where, you know, they're going through fertility treatments or they're turning to an egg donor or a sperm donor or a surrogate and family strangers in the elevator will just be like, why don't you just adopt? And, or or um, internet forums will say, you why yeah, you don't go through surrogacy adopt. because it's horrible because there's so many children that need this or yeah. something like that, you know, and some refrain. We really <laughs> wanted to talk to an expert to kind of unpack that about how it's not just like someone can just go adopt. It's not that easy. Can you tell me your first thoughts when someone says, just adopt? Oh, it, 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 it just, it angers me. And I have to, I have to take a breath and recognize that those comments come, you know, from, from ignorance and from, and from a, you know, a buy-in to that myth that's out there, that there are just babies out there that no one wants that are there to be adopted. Um, so it's not true. Uh, and you told me something interesting where you said there are no babies waiting. There are not just babies waiting to be adopted is not, (laughs) that is not a situation that's happening. Exactly. There, I, there, there are not a whole lot of things you can say categorically in this world of family building, but that is one that I can say categorically. There are no healthy infants 
waiting to be adopted without, you know, without, frankly, you know, people lined up hoping and wanting to adopt them. Uh, So the thing that where I try to then, you know, find that place of grace and patience in myself as I explain to someone that, that, no, you can't just go out and adopt. Um, so the, the place where I start is thinking about for people who are adopting, who are those children and, and where, where did they come from and, and how did they get to that point of adoption? And so I mentioned the foster care work that I did in the past. And so it's from the child welfare um, arena that this myth grows up that there are vast numbers of children waiting to be adopted. The, the thing that you have to remember about foster care, of course, is that these children are in foster care, have been taken away from their family of origin, from their birth parents, because of some kind of abuse or neglect. Um, So these children have suffered trauma. And then what our law says to us is that when the government steps in to take a child away in order to protect that child, that the first obligation because it's the right thing to do for the child and because it's the right thing to do for the parents, the first obligation our state has, and this is every state in the nation, is to try to put that family back together. Right. Because we know that, um, that if the challenges can be addressed so that the child can be safe and well cared for, that the best place for that child is going to be back with her parents. And so a child comes into foster care. Sometimes, you know, it's an infant removed at birth. And sometimes it's an older child. Um, So they're placed in foster care. And then the state child welfare system, you know, gears up to help those parents. Um, They develop what's called a case plan that outlines, okay, here are the things that we're putting this child at risk. You know, perhaps there's addiction. So we need you now to go to treatment and address your addiction problems. Perhaps there's mental illness. And so we need you to get a proper assessment to identify your mental illness and then get treatment for that illness. Um, You know, perhaps it's just abject poverty and the chaos that that poverty causes for the lives of these people. So we need you to get a job. We need you to get on all the public benefits that are out there. We need you to identify your resources and engage better with your resources so that you can then take care of your children. And in probably... I would say well over half of the cases of children who come into foster care, that works. And the state is then able to reunify those children, to send them back to their parents, which is a good thing. Mm. In a number, another significant number of those cases, it's, it beca- it's either clear from the beginning or it becomes clear that those parents are not going to be able 
to remedy their their problems, the problems that put those children at risk. And so the next priority for the state is to find the child's extended family and see if there is someone in that extended family who is fit, you know, able to care for that child and willing to care for that child. So of all those kids who come into foster care, there's another big chunk of them that are going to linger in foster care, you know, sometimes longer than they should, but who will be headed for kinship. Then there is an even smaller, so there, you know, we've just taken those kids after spending time in foster care. So when you hear that about the thousands and thousands of children in foster care, I'm telling you, you know, half of them are going to end up back with their families. Another significant portion of them are going to end up with their grandparents, with their aunts, uncles, cousins. So then we have another, you know, the remaining group of children where the parents aren't able to pull it together, where there are no relatives to take them. And so they will be available for adoption. So you're, so someone who's trying to adopt is always third. Exactly. Well, but you know what? They're not, they're actually going to be fourth. Oh no. It's third. Yeah. Because who's third are the foster parents who stepped up at the beginning. Yeah. You know, it's those families who step up and say, I can do this. I can take these children in, care for them when they're just, you know, when they're suffering from the immediate after effects of that trauma of removal and all the things that went on before removal. I can parent these children knowing and fall in love with these children knowing they might go home to their parents. And I can parent these children and fall in love with these children knowing they might go to their grandmother. And that's hard to do. Yeah. Not everybody can mm-hmm. do this. But then if those children, if nothing else works, if the parent reunification with parents doesn't become possible and there are no relatives, then most of those foster parents are going to want to adopt. And so that's who's third in yeah. line. The people who approach mm-hmm. the foster care system only to adopt, who say, you know, I've, I've, I've checked my abilities. I've, I've done that self-assessment to see how much heartache and heartbreak I'm able to bear. And I can't do that. I can't, I can't take a child into my home and into my heart knowing that they might have to leave. That's, you know, that's an important decision that, that you have to make. If your answer is no, I can't do that. I'm only going to approach the foster care system as an adoptive parent. You're now fourth in line. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it was you who was telling me like for every baby, you know, that people are trying to adopt, there's some enormous number of hopeful adoptive parents. Do you, do you know kind of what that number looks like? You know, I don't, you wouldn't have heard that from me because I don't think there is any, reliable data out there on that. Um, So as we move away from the foster care system, then, um, then we think about, okay, then what about the babies that are being voluntarily placed? 
for adoption because you know the the dream of any family not any but of 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 so many families who want you know potential parents who want to adopt the dream is juno right remember the movie juno mm -hmm. it's it's yeah. the really bright high school student or college student who just accidentally got pregnant knows that she can't parent you know the biological father maybe is still her boyfriend and and he knows he can't parent they know they can't get married that's not where they are and so they voluntarily place this child for adoption and they're healthy they come from good families and and the baby comes and they hand this baby to prospective adoptive parents who then proceed on to court to finalize that's a that's the dream it does and how exist. often does that happen yeah yeah it does exist but it's very rare it's very rare and and not just because of you know what used to be um, the availability of safe and legal abortion. It's also because you know those smart, healthy young people do a better job at protecting against unwanted pregnancies than they used to back in the fifties and sixties. That's fair. The people are more open and yeah. talking about contraception. Yeah. And then also a lot of those young people, you know, especially the young women who get pregnant accidentally, then decide to parent because it's not the, um, the terribly shameful, mm thing to be a single parent that it was right. in the 50s and 60s and and I, I referenced the 50s and 60s it really the there's a common phrase for really from the late 40s the post-war years post-world war ii years through the 70s we people call it the baby scoop era mm -hmm. and it's a period of time when you know, the, the significant social changes coming after the war led to a baby boom for everybody, not just for the married folks, you know, starting their families after the war, but also for the, um, the young men and women who seemed to be having more sex and having more unwanted pregnancies, yeah. but yet still with that stigma of illegitimacy out there. Um, adoption grew right along with that baby boom right and the practices of the social work community in connection with i don't know the social um mores of the time pressed you know pressed and pressured those women to place those children for adoption mm. in many cases when you i've read several books and and heard people speak about what it was like to give birth during those years you know those those girls were sent away to homes for unwed mothers yeah. um they were you know their families would you know all but lock them in the attic until the baby was born so nobody would find out um, I mean, I personally, I, I'm of that age. I'm a, I'm a baby boomer. And so I remember one of my high school friends told everybody she was going to Europe for the summer and we believed her. Oh, that's funny. 
And turns out a few years later, the word got out. She didn't really go to Europe. She went to her aunt's house in South Georgia and had that baby. And so, so that's what it was like during those years. And, And we developed this belief based on those years that you can just adopt that you can just sign up with an agency. There are just all kinds of unwanted pregnancies out there and women who are voluntarily placing their children for adoption. But that slowed down over the 80s and 90s. And now that we're in the 21st century, um, it's, you know, it's at a very low point. Um, I, you know, I, I, I follow lots of lift serves and go to conferences with adoption lawyers, and we're experiencing this all around the country. It's not just in states that are uh, that have safe and legal abortion available. It's it's in all states, and um, and as I said, I think it's 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 for all those reasons that I already identified. So, infant adoption is still going on in a, mm-hmm. in a, I think a very positive way in most cases, but it's not easy and it takes a long time and mm-hmm. a fair amount of money. And do you do any international adoption work or are you familiar with how international is going these days? I'm somewhat familiar. I don't do the work, um, but I'm, you know, I'm familiar with it. So international adoption really equates in a lot of ways with domestic foster care adoption because the children who are available for adoption from other countries are children who have been either abandoned by their birth families or removed from their birth families because of abuse or neglect. And in those countries where the children are available for adoption, the, um, yeah, the country is, I, I don't really, I mean, I don't want to speak too far outside my area of expertise, but those countries don't have enough adoptive parents to take, to adopt the children that are available in those countries. And so they become more open to adoptive parents from other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of abuse in this area back in earlier back in earlier decades um and so the hague the you know the countries came together and through the hague process and agreed on a compact of laws to govern international adoptions mm-hmm. um and so it's very it it's protective it's a good thing because it's protective of children and families but it's also very burdensome and it the number of international adoptions definitely dropped after the Hague laws came into play. Um, politics, of course, is very involved about which countries yeah. are open to foreigners coming in and adopting their children. Um, so it does still happen. You have to go through an agency that is certified um, under the Hague process. There aren't a whole lot of them out there. Um, and the adoption itself happens in the country where the child 
is born and is living. Mm -hmm. And so the legal process for the most part happens in that other country. Um, And then the legal process in the United States sort of piggybacks on top of that. Um, There are exceptions to that for specific kinds of cases, but that's generally the rule on that. Yeah. You had kind of brushed past something that I want to loop back to because another myth of course is just adopt and then the the secondary to that is it's less expensive Mm. talk about cost on adoption because i think that's a huge myth as well i think it is too but but i will say it's it's a myth slash misperception because there's a huge range um it is possible and i have had cases like this where, you know, if we can be a little lighthearted about it, a baby drops in your lap. <laughs> um, and, and so one of my favorite examples of this was a woman called me and she said, um, I work at a large company and there's a woman here, a younger, a young woman here who started she doesn't work in my department. She works in a different department, but she started kind of coming over and chatting me up and talking to me. And she, she, you know, as we got to know each other, she asked me one day if I was, uh, you know, if I hoped to have children. And she said, you know, people around me knew that I had hoped to have children and wasn't able to. Um, and she said, so I was honest with her. I said, well, we had hoped to have children, but we, we weren't able to. And she said, the woman asked me, did you ever think about adopting? And she said, I told her that we'd thought about it, but hadn't really taken the steps in that direction yet. And she said, then she came back the next day and said, actually, I'm pregnant. Do you want to adopt my baby? Wow. <laughs> yeah. And she said, can I do that? And I said, yeah, you actually can. And so I count, I counseled with her on how to get from that early conversation of, hey, do you want to adopt my baby to placement and adoption? And because that baby dropped in her lap, the total cost for that adoption was probably, um, it's been a few years since that one happened, but it was certainly less than $10,000. Wow. Yeah. I, I've been doing this now for almost 10 years. I've had about one of those a year. Okay. So that happens. Yeah, it happens. And if, yeah. yeah. And if that happens, then yes, the cost is, is very, I would say reasonable and attainable for most people. On the other end of the spectrum, though, are the people who make the decision, all right, we want to pursue adoption, but there are no babies apparently around them ready for placement. So what they have to do is um, everybody needs a home study, what's called a pre-placement home study. So that costs... Uh, depending on where you are and and what's going on in your community, let's say fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars, maybe more. Um, but then you have to find that woman who is thinking about placing 
a child for adoption who's pregnant right. and is thinking about placing. So how do you find that person? Well, you can, you know, you can sign up with a full service agency right. and they are out there with their connections and their website, finding those women and vetting those women and counseling with those women, figuring out what's going on with the biological father, whether he's going to be involved and is also part of the counseling and decision-making process, or is he absent and figuring out what the state laws are in that state, because the, the laws around this country on adoption are different depending on what state you're in. Right. Um, and so the agency does all that work and you pay that agency a significant amount of money. It can range, you know, from 35 to $55,000 wow. to, to find that person um, and, and to work through the matching process because the those birth parents are going to pick you from right. an array of choices um and so the waiting period for those honestly i haven't checked in a while um but probably two to three years depending on how open you are to accepting risk in a placement and we can talk about that in a minute yeah the other option that I know some people do is they sign up with two or three different agencies. Wow. And do they have to pay that, those agency fees up front? There's usually, they'll, they can usually find agencies that take, you know, a partial payment up front so that you're laying out money to be on their list. Right. And then whichever one finds you a match, then you pay the full agency fee to that agency. Um, so again, your investment in agencies and all the work that they do, because you're, you're paying for real work, yeah. um, is probably going to range again, 35 to 55 plus, depending on how many agencies you engage with. Yeah. Um, another possibility in some states is what's called a facilitator. Um, this is not a licensed profession. There is a registration process in California. I'm not sure about the other states um, where this is a person who is not the only service for the most part that they are providing is finding that person for you. Hmm. So okay. you pay a significant amount of money to that individual or company who finds you a match, but then you have to engage other professionals to do the, the vetting, the checking it out, making sure it's not a scam, making sure, you know, determining the health of the right. pregnant woman, providing support. So you're going to hire lawyers and social workers to help with all of that, which is going to add to the cost. Right. Um, there are other ways, other services out there that are essentially marketing services. And that, you know, that can sound and feel, I don't know, awkward and inappropriate when we're talking about babies, but yeah. ultimately you have to find those people, the woman who's pregnant and planning to place. And so you can pay a little bit or a lot to be on websites because what we know about a lot of these women who are, who find themselves pregnant and are exploring their options is they sit down and Google 
how do I place my child for adoption? Right. And uh, so, good, old, good old Dr. Google, right? Yeah. So which who's going to pop up first? Is it going to be yeah. that adoption agency that charges a $50,000 fee? Is it going to be the adoption agency that charges a $35,000 fee? Or is it going to be that marketing website with two dozen profiles on it that you just paid $20,000 to be part of their profiles? Right. You know, um, once the match happens, then again, somebody's got to be doing the work to check her out, to give her support, to figure out what she needs to carry this baby, you know, in a healthy and stable way until it's time for placement that might involve living expenses. Um, and, and I was going to ask that because that's something I think a lot of people get very confused about, especially going from the sphere of surrogacy where there is potentially compensation mm-hmm. um, versus adoption where there's not compensation, but there definitely is reimbursements and things yeah. like that in that process. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, as I said, the laws of adoption are different from state to state, but one consistency is you can't sell a baby. And you can't buy a baby. That's illegal. But you can, in most states, not all states, you can pay living expenses for this pregnant woman. And that sometimes starts to feel like buying a baby. And so it's why you have to be so careful to make sure you're dealing with ethical professionals, ethical agencies, social workers, and lawyers who are watching the process and making sure that you stay on the right side of that fuzzy line rather than crossing it into buying a baby. Um, But it's, you know, it's not unusual for the woman who's making the decision to place the child. It's not unusual for her to be coming out of, you know, to be living in poverty or have a lot of instability in her life, those are the things that are contributing to her making this very difficult decision. Right. Um, and we want her to be healthy and stable while she's carrying that baby. We, I mean, we'd like for her to be healthy and stable for you know, all of her life, but we've got to focus and we want her to be healthy and stable while she's carrying that baby, and that might involve paying her rent, right. um, you know, paying an additional allowance for her food budget making sure sure she's not food insecure yeah right right making sure that she's getting whatever food benefits you know that from the government that she's entitled to but also making sure that she has enough um so all of that takes work and all of that costs money right now you talked about risk and i want to loop back to i i have a feeling it's a bigger conversation than I'm even thinking of, but I know one risk is that you could go through all of this as parents pay for all of those reimbursements. And ultimately it is absolutely her decision and she could change her mind. I mean, so address risk. I know it's a bigger conversation than just that one thing, but I think that's yeah. the big stereotyped risk, yes. but there have, yes. there are definitely are more than that. Sure. And, and I think the risk that she's going to change her mind that's across the board. So that exists in every adoption. So you can't pursue adoption or you know, voluntary adoption without taking on that risk. 
Now, from state to state, that risk lasts a shorter or longer period of time. For instance, in the state of Georgia, where I am, when the woman signs the surrender, and I, you know, I'll step aside a second. I, I keep talking about the woman because it is the pregnant woman, the woman giving birth, who's the point person. Sure. If she is married, her husband has equivalent rights to her. And he's also involved in that surrender process. But in most of these adoptions, she's not married. Um, So from in Georgia, from the time that she signed. Can I actually go back and fine point on that? Yeah. So if she's not married, what rights, and again, I I need to only speak to some states, but what rights does the the biological father father have? Yeah. Yeah. I tell you what, let me talk about revocation periods and then let's loop back because okay. that's going to be the second biggest risk. Sure. So the first risk is that she changes her mind. So the revocation yeah. rights differ from state to state. In Georgia, when she signs that document after birth, she can only sign after the baby's born. She then has four days when she can change her mind with no explanation. And okay. the, a, the hopeful adoptive parents are going to have to give her the baby back. Okay. Um, in Kentucky, I think it's a 20-day period. It's long. And do they, I mean, in most cases, obviously everything is going to change yeah. depending on the situations, but in most cases, do those hopeful adopted parents have that child with them during yeah. that those three days to, to 20 yeah. days? They do. They okay. do. So it's, it's really hard. Yeah. Um, in other states, for instance, I think I'm right about Florida. So don't quote me on it because I'm not a Florida lawyer. But I think in Florida, for instance, she's not a, she can't sign immediately. I think there's a, uh, I think it's two days. Um, but then once she signs, then she no longer has the right to revoke. So that's, you know, in some states, the protection is given by delaying when she can sign. Um, So that's one risk. She changes her mind. Maybe she changes her mind before she even places. You know, you've engaged with her, started, you know, building up all these hopes for that baby. And she changes her mind two weeks before the baby's born. Or she changes her mind after she's actually handed you that baby and then you have to give her back. So the second biggest risk, I would say, is the question of the father's involvement. So as I said, if the if she's married to the biological father, then he has essentially equal rights to her. And so she cannot place a child without him also agreeing to place that child. Um, And if they both sign, they both have that same revocation period, whatever it is. If she's not married to him, but he's living with her or living nearby, providing support, they're in a real relationship and he's there for her, then, again, depending on the state, there's going to be different characterizations of his rights. But what I would say is he has close to identical rights to her. In Georgia, we would... um, we would say that ultimately he can't stop the adoption without petitioning the court, but he's going to prevail. If he's been there with her and been supportive and provided, you know, financial support and emotional support for her during pregnancy, he could stop that adoption. 
where it gets more difficult and complicated and therefore risky are those men who are maybe around a little bit but not so you got the me. you got the breakup scenario going on yeah, here yeah yeah what if the you're one, just finding out what if like you're alerted of an adoption you're like wait what well under georgia law he is specifically declared to be on notice that a pregnancy could occur when he has sexual relations with a woman. Okay. 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 <laughs> there you go. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think you're going to find some consistency among the states with that law that he doesn't get to, he doesn't get off the hook just because he doesn't quote unquote know. Um, but again, it is going to be a state law question about how long does he have before he can come back and stop the adoption plan or disrupt the adoption after it's actually happened. And that's a big risk. You know, what we see are, you know, exactly that, you know, what Ellen said, what if he didn't know? Um, Then if he finds out and then starts again, doing the right thing, providing the support, he's probably going to be more, you know, he has a better chance of being successful in stopping the adoption or disrupting the adoption. Um, But let's say he's just out there and, you know, does he know or not know? We don't know, but he's out there. Then what do we do when we start proceeding towards the placement? And then after placement, the finalization of the adoption, that's where each individual state law is different and uh and you've got to be really focused on those state laws to make sure you do everything that you can to ensure that his rights are addressed and then terminated um, and that can be a, cha- a challenge and there will there are states where the adoption is probably at risk you know for maybe up to six months or more in Georgia, um, you know, I can feel very confident that if the, you know, if we knew his name and properly notified him of the adoption and he doesn't do anything, I can be very confident that at finalization we'll terminate his rights and you don't have to worry anymore. But if we don't know his name, then our law in Georgia doesn't require us to hire a private detective and, you know, browbeat the pregnant woman to. Mm-hmm. Find say, we, out. Got the, we got the one night stand yeah. you know, guy you walked home from in the bar, don't know his name afterwards kind of situation here. Yeah. Exactly. So our law in Georgia doesn't require us to go searching for him. Um, but there's always the risk that maybe she wasn't telling us the truth. Right. Um, there's the risk that, um, that she changes her mind and her revocation period has expired. So she has virtually no claim under our, our state law to, um, to change, you know, to disrupt the adoption. But if she can go find that biological father, then, you know, maybe he can make a case and we see that happen sometimes Mm. so those are you know lots of risks around unnamed or whereabouts unknown biological fathers so when you go into adoption you have to 
know that you're taking on that risk. Um, you know, the other risks are, as I, as I mentioned, the fact that so many of these women are, are in a very bad place in their lives. And that can involve drugs or alcohol or poverty yeah. and the stress of poverty and prenatal exposure to drugs or alcohol damages babies. Yeah. And so there's, there's a risk that goes along with that. Um, when you sign up with an adoption agency, they counsel with you about those risks and, and they ask you, are you willing to accept placement of a child who had prenatal exposure to drugs? So you get to make that choice as the prospective adoptive parent. But if you say no, they're going to tell you that your waiting period just went from two years to three years. Right. So. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, so when people say just adopt, you're like, yep, it's that easy. Go for it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, any, but, a, yeah, go ahead. but of course that's the thing is, you know, we know, and I'm sure y'all have talked about that for people who are left with no option, but surrogacy or adoption, it is less expensive than surrogacy, but on, on the pure financial side, right. But potential for heartbreak is much higher on the adoption side. Yeah. Well, I think that's helpful for anyone who's thinking about either path to, to know, to have their eyes open to the risks and, you know, maybe adoption is still the right path, but to, to be informed going into it. Mm-hmm. Did, is there anything else you think is important for someone who may be hearing that message just adopt yeah. or thinking about adoption that, that they should hear or know. Yeah. There is one thing I really, I also think there's a lot of misperception and misunderstanding out there about the concept of open or closed adoptions. You know, back during that, what I referred to as the baby scoop era, you know, essentially from the forties through the eighties the norm was a closed adoption so that the the birth mother and the adoptive parents never met each other they didn't know each other's names and the birth mother had to accept when she placed that child that that the child was gone she was not going to have any ongoing contact and the adoptive parents had to know that they were going to raise this child with no knowledge about who the family was, the biological family, so that when their child asked questions, all they could say was, I don't know. That was the norm. Um, That gradually began to change before I got to this area of practice. And so now the norm is all adoptions, all voluntary adoptions mm-hmm. have some degree of openness. Um, because in 
virtually all of these adoptions, the birth mother is choosing the adoptive parents based on a profile, you yeah. know, based on a, a, I don't know, a, you know, four or five or 10 page book or website, yeah. um, you know, display of pictures and, and text that talks about here's who we are and here's why we want a baby so badly and why we're hoping you will choose us. Um, most birth mothers, not all, want some kind of ongoing contact. Now that could be just pictures and updates, or it could be visits. But what hopeful adoptive parents have got to, I believe, have got to be prepared for is wrestling with that question of openness. And as we like to say around here, we, we advise and urge all adoptive parents to be open to being open, yeah. knowing that you're not going to know what this birth mother is asking for until you are looking at a match with this birth mother because they're all very different. Um, and that openness can be a really, really positive experience for a child and a family. It can also be anxiety producing, um, but it's something that, that hopeful adoptive parents are going to have to wrestle with and, uh, and make some decisions about. Well, we know, at least from the art side, and we've had many episodes about people taking DNA tests and being surprised mm. that that <laughs> no one likes that. <laughs> no one likes their history hidden from them. That openness in terms of telling the child is really important. Mm -hmm. It is. One of the things that I do um, is help people uh, get their, you know, help adult adoptees get their adoption records unsealed. And, yeah. and, and so I'm dealing question. with, so, yeah. And, and my understanding is that most states that's permitted now, I don't, you know, I don't know every generally, but that's my impression is that in most states you can find out your birth parents if you are adopted. There's a process okay. in most states. In some states you have an absolute right to that original birth certificate. You just have to apply for it. In other states like Georgia, you have to petition the court to get um, a court order to get that original birth certificate um, and any other records that might be out there. Um, I think in Florida, it's even harder. They can do it through a court petition, but it's much harder down there mm. than it is in Georgia. So it's different. I know there's a, um, there's a group that's working around the country to get these laws changed where it's more restrictive. Um, and they're coming to Georgia. In oh, to our... get it more restrictive so that you can't access no, your no, no, certificate? No. Oh, other no, way. To, okay. get it, to get it more open. Got it. Um, so they're, um, they're going to propose a bill this coming session in the winter of 23 to, provide access to adult adoptees to get their original birth certificate. Yeah. Um, so we have our fingers crossed because I believe that, 
people are entitled to that information, should be entitled to that information. And it's so important um, for them as they, you know, as they think about just their history and, and who they're connected to and who they come from. My clients that hire me to do this, it's, it's a wide array of people. Um, you know, it ranges from, I think the youngest I've ever had that asked me to help is someone in his early forties. Um, because if they're much younger than that, there's a more, you know, again, things change. So there's more likelihood that they, uh, that they know who their birth parents are. Um, but I've also, I'm working with someone right now who's in her seventies and I just talked to somebody, I don't know if she's going to hire me, but I just talked to somebody last week who's 80 Oh wow! and seeking this information. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a compelling need for a lot of people. I get it. Yeah. That makes sense. I feel like we're seeing a lot of that in both, not just adoption, but we definitely see it in the assisted reproductive technology realm where it used to be go home, don't, you know, have a, use a sperm donor, but don't, don't tell anyone. And then now everyone's like, that, that was not a good plan. That, that's right. not good for anyone. Right. Um, well, this was incredibly informative. We're so thankful. Uh, I essentially feel like we can um, put this out there where everyone just uh, saved paying an hour of your billable rate. So I, call it, <laughs> right? I apologize to you for that. <laughs> but now they know that there is a great resource in Georgia they can hire if you are the right attorney in there in Georgia to help. Well, thank you. I, I love helping people um, who are, you know, who are trying to build a family. It's just, it's, you know, I, as I said, I was fortunate that I didn't have any significant barriers. And so it, it touches my heart when people need help and I want to be able to help. Mm, Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you again to Lila Bradley for sharing her expertise. So we are so appreciative. Yeah, I learned, I, I mean, I knew a lot of the like big high level stuff, but I learned so much in the drill down of what she talked about. It was really, I, I re- very much appreciate always expanding knowledge. Um, speaking of expanding knowledge. Do you have it? Where's your, I do. You're where's ready? your transition? Okay, go ahead. Uh, it always would expand my knowledge if people would leave us reviews and mm. tell us what they think. Or if they would reach out to us and tell us what they want to see or know or hear from our podcast. Or if uh, we they bought merch, more. would that expand or, your knowledge if they, if they bought merch? No, I mean, it doesn't expand my knowledge. It's, no. You know, it's okay. fun and funny, but it doesn't expand my with knowledge. With sperm wearing headphones, that is available in case uh, you right? did not know. Uh, but no, so people can go to our, we have a Facebook group. Um, I definitely have posted at least one of my TikToks. And by the way, if you any, the car warranty one is up there in the Facebook group. So please go join us there. Um, and we have ways you can reach us through our website. You can be an email. You can give us a phone call. Um, I still, I, I do get very excited every single time somebody calls. Um, and three times this week. It was actually not about car insurance or car warranty. It was about health insurance, apparently. So, uh, I know we're shifting what the calls are coming from. So if, if you guys give me a real call, I would really appreciate it. It would be great. Um, but we also appreciate our team, Amanda, Tyler, Melissa. And of course we appreciate you for being with us every week. Thank you.